break 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 Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. July 9th marked the 10th anniversary of the creation of South Sudan. According to the statement issued by the U.S. State Department, the first 10 years of this young country's history have seen much suffering due to conflict-related abuses, famine, flooding, and disease. Yet through it all, the South Sudanese people have shown resilience. We commend the commitment many have shown in working together to build a brighter future, so it's deeply saddening that the promise of peace and prosperity that independence represented remains unfulfilled. Here to help us understand why the optimism of the West and South Sudanese in 2011 remains unfulfilled is Joshua Craze, an anthropologist who published an article in the New Left Review coinciding with the 10th year anniversary and entitled The War They Call Peace. Joshua spent many years researching in South Sudan and has taught in various universities. He's also a research fellow at the London School of Economics, and he's writing a book on South Sudan for Fitzgeraldo. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, before we get into this, a quick reminder to those who are watching, you can listen to every episode of Rania Kalik Dispatches anywhere you get podcasts. Just search for Rania Kalik Dispatches. And for those who are listening, you can watch every episode of the show on the Breakthrough News YouTube page. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. So now to the topic at hand. Joshua, can you begin by providing our listeners and viewers with a brief history of how South Sudan came to be a country and what were the main forces behind it, including people like George Clooney? <laughs> sure. So sort of a very brief uh, version of, of Sudanese history is that the South has always been a periphery that forces in the North have used for resources, for slaves, for gold. And who that force in the North is has sort of historically changed. There was a Turkish regime, there was a British colonial regime was fundamentally, and then there was the independent Sudanese government. The British colonial regime organized South Sudan's ethnic groups. It was actually a very complicated, mixed, interesting picture and the British as they tended to do, try to divide and rule, try to organize these absolute ethnic categories. When independence comes in 1955, the northern government basically says, huge categories, we are the urbanized, Islamized elite. They will be another periphery and war breaks out almost immediately. There's a very quick moment of hope in the 70s, the first war in, and it's a, there is a socialist government in power in Khartoum, in the capital of Sudan, and they're trying to bring development to the south, it's a generalized development. Unfortunately, with the collapse of the oil industry, with the 70s economic crises, Sudan's debt burden becomes unsustainable, the country effectively collapses, south again returns to war. So that's where we're now going to get to George Clooney. From the <laughs> 80s onwards, there is this war, and the war's not being fought for southern independence. That's every American um, advocate will have you forget. The war is being fought for revolution in Khartoum, for mm. changing the whole logic of the country rather than simply breaking away. What happens in the, at the beginning of the 2000s is a few different things. One is that America has seen that uh, 11, uh, bin Laden spent some time in Sudan and it starts to put pressure 
on Sudan to open up its national intelligence agency to the CIA. And indeed, Salah Ghosh, one of the main guys within the uh, National Security Service in Khartoum, spends a lot of time in Langley. And they develop this uh, coordination between the CIA and the National Security Service. And partly, one of the things that America does is it pushes Sudan and says, look, you have a violent Islamist regime. We will begin to normalize ties with you if you agree to Southern independence. And Southern independence becomes this dream. So there's all these groups who are into Southern independence. One, you've got a huge evangelical lobby <laughs> in D.C. And they're seeing the South as a bunch of Christians and also mm -hmm. Christians who are being enslaved by the North. They then go on missions during the 90s, 2000s to free the slaves. It's unclear they're actually freeing slaves. And in many cases, the children who get into America by normal routes of asylum because of American migration policy pretended to be slaves. They would be freed by the evangelicals and taken back to America, which is mm. insane. There we go. That's a minor yeah. story of sense of war. So anyway, there's these large different groups of America who basically all see South Sudan as something like the, the beholder. They see in South Sudan whatever they dream about. So for some, it's like the last anti-colonial struggle. For others, it's the Christians being attacked by the Muslims. For most of the American government, it's an easy foreign policy win. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are obviously failing. And this is like, finally, we can do something. Bush can bring about um, South Sudanese independence. So there's this push for South Sudanese independence as the end of the war is pushing for it. And within the SPLM, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, which is the main force fighting against the northern government, there is the agreement that probably southern independence is the achievable goal. We've been fighting 20 years. We haven't, we haven't won. We haven't created revolution in Khartoum. We're going to take this. So we get this agreement called the CPA, and that's the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. That comes in 2005, and what it agrees is there'll be a six-year period of peace, and after that will be a referendum on whether the south wants to secede from the north. And what that what that period is basically is a huge bilateral agreement between the warring parties and it sets up the nature of the conflict that will continue in both countries because it doesn't include civil rights, it doesn't include the trade unions it doesn't include any of the other warring parties hundreds of warring parties but there's only two that count because in the imaginary of the international community and particularly the americans there are the sudanese and the south sudanese and they each get one party as if this was a game of risk and those <laughs> that come to town at the CPA to the exclusion of everything else. So, <laughs> um, you know, was there another option for solving the conflict in South Sudan that didn't involve severing it from Sudan? I mean, winning the war against Khartoum would be the, the most obvious way in which that conflict would have ended differently. I think from the mm. beginning of the CPA, the process um, had the capacity especially because the Sudanese government in Khartoum was weak, to involve many other parties. So as an example of what happened, in 2011, literally just after independence, the parts of the SPLM, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement that took control of the South, that aren't in the South, because it's not, it wasn't all in the South, immediately went back to war. <laughs> because in the CPA, they were only given consultancies. We don't even know what that means. No one knows what that means. So these parts... The trans of Kordofan, Darfur, Nile, which weren't in the south, but mm. fought with the south, immediately began. In the south itself, the SPLA, the army of the SPLM, so the main rebel force, was only just the majority force. 
it spent most of the war fighting not against the northern government. Again, that's the imaginary of the international community. It spent most of the war fighting against a force sponsored by the north, but separate from it, run by a general called Polino Matip. And why that's important is that the militias who were sponsored by the northern government represent a good 30 to 40 percent of the South Sudanese population. And wow. that population did not see the SPLA, the army of the rebel force, as a liberating force. They saw it as an invading army. Mm. So that force, the SPLA, it often was composed of the main minority ethnic group, the Dinka, and the Dinka epistoralists. And often as part of the war, they would come into the land of agriculturalists and they'd push them off their lands. <sighs> the other main pastoralist group, the Nur, represented by these militias, fought a bloody war and then suddenly they have to join with the government. But yeah. none of their actual concerns have been addressed. None of their actual problems with the SPLM have been addressed. So rather, and, and I think for the, the international community, if you go to any of these peace building about what it look, what peace looks like, they, they do MAs at Georgetown and then they come out with basically tick boxes, lists of like check boxes. They Colombia to Afghanistan to South Sudan. There's no real difference between them. And they're very technocratically driven processes. This pure technocratic tick box, tick box, tick box, we independence. And what that meant was all of these groups were marginalized. So I don't know whether one would say like it would necessarily have been better those groups been involved. On the other hand, having those groups involved meant that at least the reality of a plural, contested, violent politics would be addressed. And that was yeah. not just those groups, but also civil society. The, the trade unions, which are huge, right? Sudan has the biggest communist party in the Middle East, not included. It's a problem. It's a problem when you, you, when you try to create the image of two societies based only on their controlling elites. But yeah, yeah, that's exactly what the peace process did. And I mean, you kind of already answered this, but that sounds like I was going to ask, you know, why did the creation of South Sudan seemingly lead to more conflict, not less? And part of that appears to be because of the people who were given the authority to, I guess, be in charge. Would you agree with that? Can you kind of go into that a little bit more? Like, why, sure. did, the, why did it lead to more conflict? So initially, it's important to say it doesn't lead to more conflict. And the reason for that is that during the Second Civil War, they're making money by stealing cattle, mm. controlling resources, often with the agreement of the humanitarian agency, getting guns and sponsorship from external backers, so Ethiopia or Khartoum or Israel for a while. We can, I mean, there's a long history there I won't go into. And using that military power based on external resources to control areas and basically treat them like personal fiefdoms, controlling markets, so like a classic thing that come out is would they'd be they'd go into an area, they'd raise the area, destroy the population or use or recruit the population, take all their cattle, all of their crops and sell them to the north. So when the 2005 process happens, suddenly there is this bonanza. Every NGO worker in the world's eyes lights up and they're like, oh, there is money here. There is money to be made. The donors want to support this process. Everyone wants to get in on South Sudanese independence. And according to all these tick boxes, there's a state to be built. And you know who shouldn't be building a state? The South Sudanese. Because it should be the internationals who come in and build the state. They have the technocratic skills. The South Sudanese are literate, etc., etc., etc. So this is the assumptions. 
So they come in, oil money starts to come in. Oil is discovered by Chevron in the late 70s. It's going to Sudan throughout the war. And suddenly, a lot of that money is coming in to South Sudan. So its economy goes to being one of the biggest economies in the region within two years. That is transformed. It becomes tent cities. There are so many NGO workers, they can't build enough buildings to put them in. So they build luxury tents with Wi-Fi on the side of the Nile. Supporting all those tents on the other side of the Nile are really poor tents for Kenyan and Ugandan laborers. Because again, according to the NGOs, you can't get South Sudanese people to do the work. You need to get in foreigners, creating an ongoing labor dispute, which continues to this day about who should compose the working population of South Sudan. So South Sudan's in this weird position. It's having a state built for it by Norway, America. They no one's really asked the South Sudanese. They're, they're just building a state. And they're using a foreign labor force to build that state. And this is all being done in the name of the South Sudanese. Now, the reason this leads to a war is Salva Kiir, who cower in 2005 after the very charismatic leader before him, John Garang, dies in a helicopter crash, looks around at all of these militia commanders and says, what do I do with them? Like, this could be another war. This could like, we could just go straight back to war. Or they could get sponsored by the North and they could interrupt the referendum we want to have. So what Salva Kiir decides to do is he decides to buy them off. Take that oil money. This starts off this process of huge inflation in the army because all his commanders go, oh, the militia commanders get the rank of lieutenant general. I want the rank of lieutenant general. So he then has to start paying more and more money to those commanders. Old friends who's now departed, Peter Gadet, who was a commander in the SPLA. He would frequently rebel and effectively leverage his rebellion and say, look, if you want me to come back in the army, I need a better rank and I need more money. Mm. Otherwise, I'm going to destroy things. So suddenly, Salva Kiri is paying out money, paying out money, paying out money. Commanders decide that they can invent ghost soldiers so they can get the salaries of their ghost soldiers. These leaders are then trained by the Americans who've come in to modernize the army. So you've got this double process. On the one hand, is that hundreds of millions of dollars by the international community is being spent modernizing an army. In reality, under the table, yeah. this army is just becoming this marketplace used to sort of neutralize the capacity of armed actors. So this is rolling and rolling, and it's unsustainable. But in some parts of the country, like Jonglei, the least administered part of South Sudan, um, frequently flooded, very few roads, is that violence was actually worse. Mm. And one of the things that happened is that the commanders who came into power in Juba, the SBLA, the South Sudanese government, the Great Liberator, used the control of the state to propagate basically a form of class war. So what they did is they displaced people over their land, they built buildings on their land, they often then rented that those buildings to humanitarian workers designed to help people that they've just displaced. But, so they they were gaining a lot from this process, but it was also a very violent process, but this wasn't war anymore. So during the 2005-2010 period, for instance, there were a lot of demobilization campaigns, disarmament campaigns. There was this huge mm -hmm. push to do something called SSR, Security Sector Reform, Modern Armies. And part of that was only the army should have guns. So anyone who's not army should not have guns. So then the question mm. becomes, well, who is the army? Well, the army happens to be whoever is supporting the government. So what you would have is you'd have a new governor in one part of South Sudan. He would go into whole other parts of his, of his state and he would violently take all the guns away from his political enemies. So you'd have the disempowerment of whole communities, but that would be called yeah. disarmament rather than war. Right. So there were forms of violence, but for a while, 
there was a slight diminution of violence simply because of the amount of money in the country. You know, Joshua, what is the troika of the US, UK, Norway, and why do these countries have a privileged status? So they each have a different um, role, but I think all of them were highly involved in the Second Civil War. So the two, uh, one of the main organizations supplying humanitarian aid was Nigerian People's Aid. Mm -hmm. And that's partly explains why the Norwegians have always been there. And and I think Norwegians People's Aid is, is a really interesting moment of humanitarian governance, because I think... One of the things that happens now is that humanitarian aid is easily instrumentalized by the government. During the Second Civil War, aid was to some degree instrumentalized by the government, but it was just as much instrumentalized by the SPLA. And Norwegian's People Aid, among many other organizations, were not stupid. They knew exactly what was happening. They, they wanted to be instrumentalized because for them, the SPLA was fighting a war of liberation. And I'm not even sure, that's not false per se. Like it was a war of liberation that also had these like objects of violence and also oppressed other populations. But it was also a war of liberation really fought against a northern class hegemon in Khartoum. That's not a position that NGOs can take today. They can't be um, free to, uh, they can't be free to back rebel forces. They are really firmly within the state armature. So I think one of the things that's happened with the Troika to come out of it is that they all had different imaginaries of the SPLMA, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement and its army as a really liberatory force. And it took a really long time for the SPLM, SPLA in government to, for the, for the Troika to realize that maybe that wasn't the case, that maybe actually what the Sudanese government was doing was replicating the Northern Sudanese state in a bunch of ways in its mm-hmm. use of the National Security Service, um, in its inability to tolerate political opposition, in its use of oil revenues to enrich itself, et cetera, et cetera. So the Troika now has then found itself basically in the position of, we need to support the government because mm-hmm. ultimately the Troika, like the international community, and I don't really like that term, it doesn't really mean anything, but the international community as represented by all of these people who spun around doing liberal peacemaking attending meetings in Nairobi and in Addis. Like for them, South Sudan has to be about a state. So the state that we have is the state that, that, we, that we need. We can't think about anything outside of that state. We must therefore at a base level legitimize that state. So what the Troika does fundamentally today is provide international legitimacy to a state which is basically kleptocratic and violent mm-hmm. in the means by which it rules its population. But I think what the Troika would say or knowing what the Troika says, um, would say, look, we're exhausted. We feel heartbroken. And to which I would say, look, the problem with feeling heartbroken is the idea that you did it, right? It's this constant, very colonial assumption. They know the state is bad and hopeless. And instead, they hope that, like, but they they can't move outside the state, so they hope that there'll be a new generation. And I think the, the blindness of that position and I think the, the blindness often of the way that this, the international media treats new generations of Africans or new generations of Middle Easterners, it's, it's basically racist. And then there'll be some new generation, but in South Sudan, there's no new generation. There is a structural system of oppression right. enabled by the international community. 
new people are just going to play a part in that system unless you can advance a theory or an idea of how there will be actual social change on the ground. There's no reason that a younger elite, the sons of those politicians now trained at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Chicago, where I used to teach, and suddenly to leaders. That just makes no sense. That's a sort of weird American belief in individualism, right? That somehow like an yeah. individual is going to save the day. It's not going to save the day. And yet that's, I guess, where the Troika fell, because it's unwilling to think its own role in sustaining the system. Yeah. Now, you've been a harsh critic of the so-called international community's role in South Sudan, as is evidenced by everything you've said so far um, and the articles you've written on this. But can you explain what were the mistakes of the international community? Why did they get it so wrong? And how was it that they made matters so much worse? So if we begin in 2005, mm -hmm. I think so. Just some, some really basic structural problems. One was there was just a, a, a fundamental lack of knowledge, which was also about, I think, racism, which was that huge amounts of money came into the country. And they said that South Sudan, this is a, this is a literal quote from the World Bank, was a tabula rasa, a blank slate. Mm. There's nothing to be known. And so they didn't know any history. They came in with this these huge fantasies of what a state should look like and they were instrumentalized so you know like there were these enormous plans for the modernization of the army and yet at the same time the army was being expanded by 300 percent through groups of militias that had no loyalty to the state and that was being called modernization now one, at one level, I sort of want to cheer the South Sudanese government there because a bunch of really arrogant colonialists came in and the South Sudanese government went, yeah, we're going to instrumentalize you. Yeah, we're going to take you for a ride. Yeah. And I think within the international community, there were a few problems because they became aware of that ride. And partly they couldn't talk about it in public because mm -hmm. that would threaten their funding. And by now they are a serious institutional presence. Like Their budget dwarfs the budget of the South Sudanese government itself, right? So they are a huge economic presence. They're making salaries. They're making money. And now they're in it. And they're like, well, I think we should probably cover up some of our mistakes. And that's one thing. Mm -hmm. So there's blindness and then there's willful blindness. Those, I think those are two like really important background elements that have never ceased to be there. They're still there <coughs> today. There is this, there's this intention to turn a blind eye to what the South Sudanese government is doing. Then three, I think this is just a more general problem with, um, with, with the humanitarian international, which is that it's predicated on things called capacity, as if capacity was neutral and technocratic, right? Mm -hmm. So like, what did they come in to do? And I'm looking at here, I'm not even necessarily faulting them there. I, I met in like 2006, 2007, eight, a bunch of, very idealistic, fresh off the boat, like SOAS, School of Oriental African Studies in London, left idealists, graduates who were building Kalazar clinics in Upper Nile. Kalazar being a disease, right? Okay, great, good. Like, where are you building the Kalazar clinic? Well, you happen to be building it in a place called Akoka. Why does that matter? Because it's a new county created by the government at the cost of the Shilluk population that used to live in those same areas. So what you're doing is you're concentrating development resources in areas that the government is legitimizing. 
And when I tell this to you, you go, but the Minister of Health told me to build it here. I mean, yeah, of course the Minister of Health told you to build it here. He's from the Padang Dinka, the dominant group in the government. He's building shit in his own areas to the cost of the of the shilluk. And why is this a problem? Well, because it's creating, it's compounding political inequalities with economic inequalities produced by the development process, which will then produce, and indeed does produce violence, the moment the war begins. Mm-hmm. So I think this, like, fundamentally what it did was it prioritized this idea of capacity. So it plowed loads of money into roads, which were then destroyed during the war. Um, Kalazar clinics, without understanding that actually a state is built, I think, fundamentally on the back of political legitimacy. And that political legitimacy is a condition of state building. You don't bootstrap in a state by somehow building a bunch of skyscrapers and waiting for the people to come. That's not how any state in history has worked, right? Like you end up like an Angola with these abandoned towns of of skyscrapers waiting for a middle class that is just a fantasy in the mind of the developers because you're not being real about the actual political economy of the country. So one, just like to to close that, of the most um, explicit (laughs) indications of that is that all around the country, but especially in Jongle, people at the beginning of the war destroyed the roads to their communities. Now, the South, for the development people, roads bring development resources, trucks, and so on. For many people who destroyed their roads, the roads brought the tanks that were going to destroy their villages. That was what mm-hmm. modernity meant. Modernity meant the cap- their capture and destruction by a government. So, and I think that government didn't necessarily begin in 2005. It wasn't fated in stone that it had to be predatory. I think the international community, by turning a blind eye and enabling and enabling the marketplace, the marketplaceization of the government, the fact that the whole government is basically turned into a bidding war by commanders, mm-hmm. is what enables it to become predatory. Yeah. Do you find that, like with you know the Oslo process for Israel and Palestine, for example, international officials? create this fiction, right? And then whether it's a process, a state, a prime minister, and then they end up believing their own fiction. And do you see this pattern repeated in other conflicts in Africa, such as Somalia or the Congo or elsewhere in the world, like Syria or Yemen, where despite you know massive political and humanitarian interventions and peace processes and billions of dollars spent, both stability and, po- and peace remain ultimately elusive? Yeah, I so... I think to give you the, the darkest version of that argument, does stability remain elusive? Because I think there's an important way to read the history of American foreign policy, which says that actually the goal is stability, mm-hmm. but the goal isn't freedom or right. um, empowerment or flourishing. So. If you look, I mean, so the most obvious place recently, right, is Congo. Mm-hmm. And Congo also has internationally backed elections. And so we're now coming, like, the next thing on the South Sudanese peace process checkpoint process chart is elections. We've been having diplomatic meetings about them all year. And I've been saying it's a terrible idea. I want that on record. It's a terrible idea. <clears throat> we just had them in Congo. And what were they? Well, no one really understood what they were. They, in some places, led to increased violence around the country. They were deeply marginal elections. They largely were reflective of a rural elite in 
Kinshasa. They certainly weren't reflective of what was happening in Ituri. But they did, on the other hand, actually provide something like a certain um, consecration of a pretty violent state and a certain diminution of violence that could be called uh, war. People don't like war. I don't know if people mind violence. I mean, I think that's true of the streets of Chicago as much as mm. it is true of South Sudan, right? Like the fair enough. The like they're, they're right. There's this like I was in meetings. I was like, the ground is not set in South Sudan for elections. Elections will be used by the ruling elite to consecrate their power, and there will be wholesale population demographics, like population, like forcible population movements, demographic engineering. Uh, before these elections, in terms of who gets gerrymandered into which districts, right. who gets to vote where. And I think people, right, like on one level, as you say, people believe their fictions. They're like, a state is a democracy. A democracy requires elections. Elections bring with them legitimacy. And it's like a mantra, right? And like, mm -hmm. if you cast doubt on any element of that, people are just like, ah, uh, <laughs> well, then what are we doing? Like, what, what, what is anything? It's not clear if pastoralism has a future. Because people have had wholesale displacement from the areas in which they graze their cattle. It's not clear whether wage labor is a good fight the fact that the IMF and World Bank are backing projects because wage labor is an intensification of military forms of control of populations, etc. I could enumerate them. On the one hand, there's this no sense there is like their own fiction. On the other hand, I think that they actually cynically realize that their fiction does produce the state that they want. And like the example of that is Somalia. Like Somalia is a real fiction produced in a real green zone in Mogadishu in which all the international community live because no one can leave the green zone and no one knows anything that happens outside the green zone, basically. It's like this epistemological right. blah. And you can talk about a government, even though really it doesn't really control Mogadishu, and if it does, it only controls it during the But we can insist there is a government, therefore there is a peace process, therefore... USAID can continue to sell Californian goods, buy up Californian goods and give them out. The CIA can continue running black sites in Mogadishu. That's also important for the CIA. So everyone's happy in the US government, in their various incoherent ways, right? By the idea that, say, like, it is a fiction, but in a way, like, it's a real fiction, right? Like, I think the history of US foreign policy in particular is about creating real fictions, fictions that have, like, this odd fantasies that still exist, right? Like in the same way that I think the, if you look at photographs of, of the, the green zone in Baghdad or used to Bagram Air Base until they all left in the cover of, you look at the, um, the bowling alleys and the McDonald's, you go, this is a fantasy. Okay, but it's a fantasy yeah. that, you know, like ran a, like try to impose rule on a country and led to hundreds of thousands of deaths. So that's the fantasy we're talking about. Like it's a real fiction. Right. That's a good way to put it. It's like a fiction they bring to life. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, you know, you wrote or you write of South Sudan that, and I'm quoting you, superficially, a modern liberal state was being created under the watchful eye of the Adam Smith Institute. Can you describe the extent of their role in forming the modern South Sudan, the extent to which South Sudan exemplifies a sort of neoliberal test laboratory of state formation led by an international elite you know, combining the diplomatic core, multilaterals like the UN, neoliberal thinkers, and, you know, clueless humanitarians, if you will. Mm. Um, so there's a great book by Sharath uh, uh, Sunavasan, which just came out, called When Peace Kills Politics. And one of the things about South Sudan, 
one and Amsterdam. One of the scenes he describes in it is that at the Ministry of Finance, there is someone from an international organization, which I suspect is the Adam Smith Institute, because they had a huge role in the Ministry of Finance. But they were writing up memos on budget um, constraints, which were being sent to various other ministries, where they'd be read by other members of the Adam Smith Institute, who would sign off on the budget constraints and send Jesus. them back to the Ministry of Finance. That's crazy. And so, like, yeah, like there was this like real unbelievable state being made by internationals who would come in like their own teams of like EU people, Americans, IMF, World Bank, Adam Smith Institute. A lot of donor money was going projects like just create this state like literally a decade on is nowhere to be found like that story is the story of the sudan and the Sev, where their debt burden led basically like to this whole rollback of this attempt at development projects this veering away from a socialist project towards forms of islamism that then like accentuated divides between the north and the south like that whole story is really the story of the 70s and like in late 70s early 80s in sudan the, the question in south sudan is like there was no tabula rasa. There were very complicated patterns of guerrilla government and of taxes by the SPLA, by the rebel force. Um, but none of those could be because there were no official institutions. And so what the Adam Smith Institute thought was we need to create modern, reflexive institutions. We need transparency about the oil revenue. What they basically did is create fantasies, just create like whole castles in the sand and under which the real economy which was this redistributive kleptocratic economy of the elite, which were displacing people, taking their money, taking oil money, doing payoffs of other commanders so there wouldn't be a war. That process was about to continue, at least until the oil prices fell and there was an oil country in 2012. So the, like, I think there's, the answer did two things. It legitimized that elite by pretending the state was created and it made itself a lot of money. And what it did insofar as like, like basically the project of the Elizabeth Institute there and of the international community is fundamentally bankrupt insofar as what it thinks the state is, is a series of institutions that foreigners can create. The reality is that for a state to be sustainable, it has to be created by the people who are actually involved in the state. Mm -hmm. And if they're not creating it because it's been taken by the international community, that leaves the space for the elite to just become predatory. And that kind of feeds into the next thing I wanted to ask you, and I'm quoting you again here. You wrote in your article that, you know, you said the great untold story of the South Sudanese Civil War is that it has been a massive wealth transfer from an immiserated population to a militarized elite enabled by the international community. Can you elaborate a bit on that? How do these peace agreements create a militarized elite class and a poor dispossessed class? So and it. Any number of ways, so, but I'll try to be um, succinct and precise about it. What the the period of peace from 2005 to 2013 enabled was the extant elite in the SPLN and the militias get a lot of oil money to get a lot of development and donor money. They also took up control of large areas of land. What the wars allowed them to do is to pursue militarily what they pursued relatively peacefully during the prior period. So fundamentally, that's 2015, the elites from one group, the Bulnur, go south, good southern unity, and they steal hundreds of thousands of cows. 
Cows are one of the main sources of wealth for the populations of Southern Unity. They just steal them and drive them back home. They're not just a source of wealth, they're a source of symbolic value, cultural value. They are how one marries, how one comes to terms with death for the Nuer. They're everything. And the population now has nothing. Mm. So what does the population do? Well, the population goes into humanitarian sites. Where are these humanitarian sites where food are distributed? The government selects where the NGOs can distribute food. So, of course, of course, because the, the, the NGOs only operating on the behest, right? So the government chooses, obviously, government-held areas. Let's We'll go return to those areas in a second. What happens in the rest of, of the southern, southern unity? Well, there's no one in it. So what can the government do? Raid it. Take all the money, take all the resources, take all the cows, etc., etc. Take all the humanitarian resources. Now let's return to the humanitarian side. All the people are there. Those people no longer can rebel because they're outside. That we've we've removed the fish from the sea, to use Mao's language. Right? Like there are no rebels that can that can now take up arms. The government then takes the food from the humanitarian side to feed its soldiers and their families. And controls the rebel population. So what we now have is an immiserated population. It's in an urban environment. It's dependent either on humanitarian food or on wages because suddenly it needs to work. It can no longer be self-sufficient. The, there's been a huge retraction of the rural population. It's produced a class of wage laborers. Then these wage laborers go to work. Who do they go to work for? Well, if they work for anyone, they work either for the NGOs or for the, for the elite. Mm-hmm. So what you've had is this process where people have literally been thrown off their land, which has been appropriated or despoiled. They've become immiserated. Their resources have gone to the elite, and they are now, in many cases, working for that same elite. Hmm. Now, just to even broaden it out a little bit more to what you're saying, you also write uh, that the war, and I'm quoting you again, the World Bank formally considers the war a disaster. But in many respects, the conflict has accomplished the goals of the organization. Vast tracts of the country are now uninhabited as populations withdraw to relatively safer urban areas. South Sudan's population of 12 million is now 20% urban. The empty land that results can be sold off to foreign companies and local barons. The South Sudanese population displaced into cities is increasingly reliant on markets for food and wages for income, as you just described. But can you elaborate on how this this all furthered the goals of an organization like the World Bank and how and why that is? Why that is a goal of the World Bank, I guess? Sure. So my, to be very precise, my argument is not that the sort of the World Bank created this war and it furthered the goals. I think that there's the, the way that the international community likes to think about this war is that the war is a catastrophe, a disaster, everything's gone wrong. And mm-hmm. I think, I'm not saying that's not true, it's obviously a disaster. On the other hand, I think what that means is that you think about the war negatively. You just think about what the war broke, disrupted, destroyed. Whereas what this war has done is really changed the country. It's created changes in the dynamics of the country. There's no going back. So if you take the World Bank in 2005, with people who said, like, there are problems in South Sudan. The, the economy is not financialized. We just mm-hmm. say, like, a lot of people weren't simply using money. They were using, there were subsistence farmers with some cows that they were pastoralists. There were schemes, and they were using money, but not everything was financialized. It wasn't like they weren't connected to markets. They did have money, but money did not supply, like, necessarily the bulk of what they were doing. So we need to financialize the country. Pastoralism has always been seen by the international institutions as a problem, as a negative. Mm. 
as, as a problem to be solved. And I think if you look at what the war's done, the war has really impacted on pastoralism. It has, right, pastoralism is a danger to capitalist logics because it's, it's not based, it's not predicated on wage labor, right? And it's not predicated on land mm -hmm. ownership. It's predicated on much more flexible forms of land ownership and uh, partial rights at different times of the year and so on. It's pushed people into urban areas. It's removed subsistence agriculture. It's made them dependent on markets. It's made them increasingly dependent on wage labor. All of these things fundamentally are goals, and that's what's been achieved. So mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's not going to endorse the methods by which it's been achieved, but that's a much broader history, which is that if you look at the history of war and its relation to capital, War has right. always been the fundamental process for the accumulation of capital and for the creation of capital markets because it removes the heterogeneous forms of ownership and control over land that prevent the sort of the flattening that exists via capital capital relations, right? Like just yeah. ownership and wage labor. And I, I mean, I think that goes to the issue of like, you know, leftists and anti-imperialists like me tend to look for external causes to the problems faced by countries of the global south. And sometimes the agency of local actors is ignored. Um, but how do you think we can apportion responsibility for what's befallen the people of South Sudan? Does it go back to the British? Is it capitalism, imperialism, ethnic hatred? You know, what were the motives for this intervention of the international community in South Sudan? I mean, so there's, of those two questions, in terms of apportioning blame, I, I, I don't know. I'm not very good at apportioning. I think I would <laughs> say that I would say that right now the rather than sort of slinging blame, I would say if I was a member of the troika or the humanitarians, I'd say what am I doing right now that actually enables the current predatory regime to continue? I think there's a very um, simple question that one asks that I think which um, originally framed, which is rather than thinking about intervention, yes or no, in some sort of Samantha Power-esque way, ask the question, how are you already intervening? Because it's rare that a Western country is not in some way already intervening. And ask yourself, yeah. what are those interventions doing? So the interventions themselves blameworthy. And I think that the international community not in its like grand diplomatic uh, grandstanding um, is doing very much at this hot air, but in the, the very simple forms of humanitarian for rents for its compounds, it is sustaining the regime and it is playing a part in the political economy of the country in ways it should recognize and reflect on and could do differently. In mm -hmm. terms of what like the overall um, overall blame for what's happening in the country. Um, Mahmoud Mamdani has a new book out. He has a chance to on it. And my argument is basically that the British led to widespread um, sort of ethnicization as a mode of government. And it's that ethnicization that has continued to this day to structure power in South Sudan. I think there's some um, degree of truth to that, the normative sort of dreams have been instrumentalized by increasingly zero ethnic competition. I think Clemence Pinot writes about that 
interestingly also in her recent book but but it's not they're not ancient periods and they're not um and I, I i tend to think of mobilization of ethnicity really as uh if not not epiphenomenal but marginal to the larger shifts in the political economy of the country that are really transporting mm -hmm. and i think that there's a way in which if you buy into the argument that it's hatreds going back to the British because the British created them and manipulated them, it both removes agency but also overstates the immense degree of resources that the South Sudanese people have had over the last 70 years to overcome differences via pretty, like, way more sophisticated um, peace negotiations than anything the internationals could imagine. Different pastoralists, been different rebel groups. And I think really the questions that um, ultimately motivate conflict right now are not per se ethnic questions. They're questions of is in control of land and control of money. And I think that until really the international addresses those head on, then I think it's complicit in in current regime because it's trying to make everything into a question of politics as technocratic procedure. Whereas really I think that the current question in South Sudan is politics as social justice. Mm. And then as for the motives of the international community, the motives for the intervention, and I know that's not an easy question, but if you had to like boil it down, what were the motives for intervention of the international community in South Sudan? Different ones. I think if you go with the Americans, then from 2005, like from, from the peace negotiations, it is a easy foreign policy win. They think they can mm. lay the claim that they are the paragons of self-determination, the, the claim of Pax Americana and Manifest Destiny leading to the creation of a new country. Let's not talk about the Kurds, but let's talk about, you know, South Sudan. <laughs> and then I think like a lot of American foreign policy and to be honest, a lot of Western foreign policy, the question, now you're in it, how do you turn it into a success? Like I think the great sort of, I don't know if you remember reading um, Arendt's essay on the Pentagon Papers. The most interesting thing that Hannah Arendt says is you read the Pentagon Papers and you struggle to see a motivation for the war in Vietnam. In fact, what's mm -hmm. really interesting is you see a profusion of motivations because they're looking right. for any motivation they can have to stop declaring their own project of failure. <laughs> right. So the question is, as ever, like, what were we doing, if one is an American, in Afghanistan? Well, there was a moment where it was, you know, revenge, finding bin Laden, and then bin Laden vanished, and now we're creating development, but then development doesn't work. So now we're getting rid of the Taliban, but then that's clearly not going to happen. So now, so the, the motivation changed. South Sudan, you know, in 2005, we're building a new state, the state that we created, um, and we're going to be preventing the, uh, the, like, the possibility of the north of Sudan coming in into that process. So George Clooney comes in here to return to your first question. He has made lots of money from Nespresso and he's wondering <laughs> what to do with all his money. This is literally what he says. So, you know. And he um, decides with his mate, uh, former Clinton era foreign uh, state department guy um, to create a satellite sentinel project. And these satellites hang over the border between Sudan and South Sudan. And they're there to make sure that the Sudanese army doesn't invade. 
and so allows South Sudan to have a secession. And they're also there because this without the weeds too much, it's where I did my first real field work called Abye. And Abye has also been promised a referendum to see if it wants to join the South. It's a Northern Territory, it remains to this day or contested. Um, and they want to make sure that Abye is not invaded. So they have these satellites going over the territory and their tagline is, the world is watching because you are watching. And the idea, and it's hard, and the idea is that like somehow South Sudan, again, that this empty mirror in which you can see your desires. And so like what the particular desire is matters less to me, I think, than this basically colonial construction of South Sudan is effectively empty, except for what the colonial wants to see in them. And this, of course, is part of the great uh, uh, of a season of migration to the north. Uh, one of the great Sudanese novels of an earlier era when the country was united um, by Taib Saleh. And so the, the, whole, the whole logic really is like, it doesn't actually matter. People different things about South Sudan. They always thought it in the same kind of way. They thought it mm -hmm. that they were going to be the saviors. They thought it that this is a country that needs our help. They thought that South Sudan was a child. I mean, and just like to <laughs> emphasize how, how deeply ingrained that is. I was literally in a meeting of all of the main diplomats involved in South Sudan. And someone <laughs> said that now South Sudan is entering its difficult teenage years. Oh God, which is so not, which is offensive. Not, which is, <laughs> it's, but it's not even true, right? Because I was 11. But like leaving that aside, like of course it's like, it, it continues this basic sense that like we need to guide these people because they can't guide themselves. Whereas the reality is twofold. One is that They've taken the international community expertly, led them exactly where they needed to go and made a fool of them. And they know that. On the other hand, the people that they've done that to are like the people who've done that are um, commanders who, are, who have created a system which really has led to the misery and sort of the, the violent uprooting of entire communities across the country. So like, you know, there's almost sort of no one to cheer from really at, at this stage. And the, and, and, yeah, and so it's just like the only sort of thing that I would say in that State Department press release that you read, the only thing that mm -hmm. one could sort of support, yet nonetheless, around the country, the South Sudanese people have been incredibly resilient. And there are still um, great demands for forgiveness and peace. And, and, uh, and, and peace not in the sense of like a technocratic procedure, but sort of peace being living with other people who've done incredible harm to you yeah. and so yeah that seems like um that seems like the one moment of of hope which as walter benjamin says is that which is given to the hopeless so i mean this is a bit of a dark turn i'm about to take but i think it's an important question um and i don't know if you're going to be able to answer it or not but let's try uh you know the violence in south sudan has been shocking uh brutal you know, seemingly senseless. But of course, you know, in civil wars, there is a logic to violence, right? So can you explain why militias might engage in ethnic cleansing and massacres and mass rapes and all of these things we've heard that's been happening? Is it just pure irrationality and evil? Or can we make some sort of sense of it? Right, so there's, um, it's definitely not irrationality. I can't say whether it's evil 
I think, again, the person who's done the most to try to articulate this, though we disagree on things to know in a couple of essays and in a recent book. Um, so ethnic displacement, I'll just take these sort of strategies one by one, makes a lot of sense if you want to control land. Mm-hmm. and But it's not just land in the sense that... Um, there's a scarcity of land and you want to control this land because it's really valuable agricultural land. I think, and this is again, one of the reasons the international community has been most pernicious. It's land as a symbol of political power. So if you take up a Nile, then the campaign that the uh, government has waged against the Shilluk people, which has pushed them, which has ethnically cleansed them from one area on the East bank of the white Nile, has allowed them to claim that they are the government in that area, that the Shilluk live on the other area, and so they should get all the resources that come from that area, including a cut of the oil revenue, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, but also control of the main town, Malakal, which is contested between the two groups. So ethnic cleansing there is very much about political power. And I think what the period from the the CPA period, 5 to 13, put in place was a system in which Ethnic groups basically battled for zero-sum control of different areas of the country, and so they could. And so ethnic, ethnic displacement really became sort of the war corollary of gerrymandering, which mm. is massively practiced in South Sudan during the war. <coughs> the president changed South Sudan's ten states first to twenty-eight states, and then to thirty-two states, in order to maximize his own control of the, the valuable areas of the country, and then reduce it down to 10 states. The of sexual violence is, you know, it's a difficult and painful one, but it's one I think that fundamentally reflects on the fact that South Sudan entry in which land is really at stake. It's a, it's a huge country and has a very small population relative to its size. Right, it's like, what may be at the last at the earlier referendum 18 million maybe a million inside the country for an area which is absolutely massive mm. um it's like it's like the population of london placed in the area of southern england you know i mean it's, it's enormous like bigger than southern like half of england uh bigger than, i i can't even give you a decent scale of it so what war has been brought over is the question of people and control of people the circulation of women via marriage and the ruling elite using and everyone using strategies of marriage to build kinship alliances and kinship networks. And so sexual violence has proved often to be a part of that sort of alliance building. It removes the possibility of other groups being able to build structures. It tries to arrogate control of reproductive faculties to the ruling elite. Um, and it's done as a penance. It's done as a logic of violence between groups and there's i think the the fact that it's become this thingly like in zero sum competition between ethnic groups really means it's a battle over blood and people and in a battle Mm -hmm. over blood and people there isn't such a thing as a civilian violence against civilians becomes part of the war process and jock madit jock and sharon hutchinson and Luca Byung-Ding have done really good work looking at this during the Second Civil War, which is that part of what happened was that in order for these commanders to maintain control over their populations, 
they removed a lot of the moral barriers to war. So if war between communities was often common during the war, it was a war that said, you can steal cattle, but you can't kill children. Mm. You can you can um, burn houses, but you can attack cattle barns. And a lot of these uh, limits moved during the Second Civil War to try to firm up ethnic divisions between groups for the SPLA, but also fundamentally for the militias back by the sort of concretized for means of weight and accumulating capital within that process of war. Mm. That's, a, that's actually a really interesting response. Um, you know, you also have written that it's not only local actors who benefit from the corruption of the humanitarian and NGO industry. It's also members of the international community itself, diplomats, consultants, NGO workers who benefit via nice salaries, hardship allowances and kickbacks and they too get rich. So can you describe the sort of class of international elites who descend upon a context like South Sudan under the auspices of humanitarian intervention? Um, and can you discuss the importance of corruption, both among South Sudanese and those kind of, you know, white saviors who come in to help them? Yeah, I mean, I think the the class that came into June 2005 largely lived in a different world and moved from Sudanese, as Fanon describes the colonial world in the world of the colonized, insofar as they had compounds, they had gated entry, they had very limited contact with the South Seas and they were on um, field missions or they had drivers or translators. They were largely, but not exclusively white. Um, they, uh, like like all NGOs, I think ultimately cynical members who were just there to make a buck. I met people who were out to advance their careers, to be sure, like, like in most professions, they were asked to advance their careers insofar as um, they wanted to save the world. And for them, saving the world came with an instruction manual and it came on a manual um, that was from their donors. And I think basically the fundamental democratic problem that all NGOs face, all international NGOs face, and that they can't resolve because it's structural, and I think that's what Jim Ferguson talks about in the anti-development machine, is that partly what he talks about, is that they're responsible for their donors, and their donors are in mm. D.C. or in London. Their donors are not on the ground, so they can talk about doing projects in consultation with local communities all they like. Ultimately, they're not democratically accountable. Ultimately, they need to provide photos and they're responsible to people who are providing the money and those people live elsewhere and have right. different motivations, right? And those motivations are not about the government. So again, like the question of corruption, I think is less, there are or were at least from 2005, 2013, some juicy stories about, uh, you know, consultants, uh, reforming the army and giving money for mili military bases they knew weren't being built that were just going into commanders' back pockets and so on. There are some of those stories. Those stories, in a way, are not the are not the real story. The real story is the really humdrum story, part of which I think you've already told, which is that people who in London, were, who were 23, just came out of their degrees, and in London, they'd be working in a sweaty office during August 
and they'll be taking the tube and oh it's like it smells and they're working long hours they turn up in juba they'd have a driver a four by four they'd have a staff of south sudanese colleagues though they were helping to create a world a nation and that's so much sexier you know like who doesn't want to do yeah. that like everyone wants to do that right so that's the much more boring story i think and as part of that there is nepotism and that nepotism was about you do not um, select for the workers who make things difficult. You select yeah. for the people who are along with the plan. And I literally had a good Senegalese friend of mine. He said he worked for UNDP. And he said, look, my job is turning up, answering my email and not falling asleep in meetings. <laughs> and for, that's the dream. And many of, that's the dream. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think like, for, for, and also for many of those people who are most, um, who were most skeptical and most turned on to what was happening in the institutions. I think part of the problem was they were often, especially in the UN, from the global south, mm. and they had the most to lose from speaking up because those salaries were often the most valuable salaries. Right. And so they sort of turned off. The internationals from London lived in a sort of fantasy land, which sustained their dreams. And then the corruption was that everyone just recruits people from their own background you know you would have whole um my dog is very upset he's very upset about like um, a little cameo he's yeah 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 the dog always has to have a cameo <laughs> in these things um that the, they the, they you know and so that like often one of the things that took hold during this era is that certain families and certain ethnic groups would largely control recruitment into mm -hmm. the ngos and then they had a vested interest in the NGOs continuing and then in the NGOs hearing exactly what they needed to hear. And so there was this sort of echo chamber where I, again, I have lots of Kenyan friends who talked about learning how to speak in NGO English. <laughs> have you seen like you know, the Boots Riley film, right? Where you learn like the white voice yeah, yeah. in America. Well, here we have the NGO voice, right? And the NGO voice says like, yeah, like we're so happy here. It's great. The work you're doing is wonderful. And this voice is, is bullshit, you know, like it's a voice that basically enables the system to continue. And like, I think the one thing that the NGOs have done, which is really good, is that they have employed a whole staff of people. On the other hand, that staff is nepotistically recruited. It is recruited in pretty corrupt ways via right. various families. And the NGOs know that. They also just don't know really how to change it because those are the methods of recruitment. And I think it's in these much more subtle forms of corruption and class formation that actually the the the, the of the of the international community and the way it works is to be found rather than like the great corruption stories um you know I, I'm curious about the role of 9-11 in all of this. And what I mean by that is, you know, how how important was the post 9-11 moment, the war on terror moment in the creation of South Sudan? And what role can it be said that the international war on terror hostility to Omar al-Bashir and the related commitment played in culminating in the international support for independence and what lasting impact, if any, does that history have on the present day crisis? So I think it has a sort of necessary but not sufficient condition insofar as what is interesting is that from the 80s onwards in, the, in DC, not to make this too DC-centric a story, like there is a lobby in favor of the SPLM, SPLA. There's a group called the Council, 
and mm. the council is composed of people who are really um, believe in the SPLA as an anti-colonial struggle. There's also an evangelical lobby that see this as like basically a Christian versus Muslim war. And right. they're both very important to America's role in pushing for the CPA. But it's only after 9-11 that their voices really begin to be heard. Mm. So it's not like they're not important, but you need 9-11 for, for it to happen. And you need 9-11 in a couple of ways. First, because suddenly, South, suddenly Sudan becomes interesting. Mm-hmm. Like one of the reasons I think that Sudan is, is interesting for me as a scholar is that prior to that point, it's really just not, um, it's not diplomatically central to the agendas of the State Department and, the, and, and, and Britain, for instance. Britain's slightly different because of the colonial legacy. But I mean, and that never really changes because if you talk to people at the State Department today, the hard truth is that they don't actually give a shit. Like yeah. they're much more concerned with Yemen. They're much more concerned with Iraq, right, et cetera. So, but there is a moment where they're like, oh, we don't want, we're, we're on the lookout for new Afghanistans. So I, I would go into State Department meetings, they'd literally be, they'd say things like, will Sudan become the new Afghanistan? Or they'd <laughs> say, will, um, will, Afghanistan, will Sudan become the new Mali? Because they've already understood Mali to be the new Afghanistan. And there's this like analogical chain of thinking that's, that's moving, their, that moving their thought and their action. So it is really important to them for a period for two reasons. One is that um, they can, they want to ensure that. And so they want to bring Bashir on side, the ruler of mm-hmm. um, the National Congress Party at the time. And they also want this foreign policy success. This isn't the question of South Sudan. And so they begin this really weird double process, basically. It's not actually really weird. It's what the CIA does all the time, which is that they domesticate and bring on side the national security service of the Sudanese state, while from the outside putting pressure on the Sudanese state to drive it to the negotiating table. Mm. And and that's like, I don't think that process sort of kicks off or really get, you know, get started without 9-11. Mm. What of that remains today? Well, now the, there's a lot of... Um, you know, basically, it's a sort of 2005 moment in Sudan. There's a huge amount of donor interest in what the transition looks like in Sudan, what life after Bashir looks like, what is the makeup of the transitional council, in which 9/11 really has sort of vanished as a as a as a as a question, um, because ultimately the. Ultimately, I don't think America's interest in Islam, as it were, was anything other than an an interest in scapegoating and in racism and in alarmism. It wasn't a genuine interest in like Islamic political economy or the role of Islam in a country like Sudan. Like there was no sustained thought, I think, given to these questions. Like there was no sustained thought given to these questions when they were involved in the Adapi constitution. So there's... It, it's basically, I think, vanished. And I think in some of the ways that um, that the, the rebels, you know, have in, in South Sudan have often said to me the same things like, you know, like, we will become ISIS. And there's no basis for them to become ISIS. Like, there's no, like, it doesn't mean anything. 
but what they're aware of is that like maybe with some international branding <laughs> yeah. we could like get Jesus. some interest in our struggle right and i think that's like that's again like that's them really like reading the international room and like understanding how like where the cookie crumbles in terms of like geopolitical motivations at a certain moment yeah. in history but the reality is now i think a lot of that um a lot of the the commitment to south sudan as like liberatory christian anti-terrorist etc has sort of burned off like so much morning mist and the international community now is sort of sitting in its own disappointment. It gets to feel disappointed. And it, the way it does that is by demonizing uh, the South Sudanese elite. And by demonizing the South Sudanese elite, what it gets to do is it gets to extirpate or sort of negate its own role in creating it. Right, right, right. Um, I want to ask you about the issue of oil. You alluded to it a little bit, but I'm curious, you know, what was the significance of oil in perpetuating or even, you know, directly or indirectly today's conflict. <clears throat> right. So 2005, they get the South Sudanese government, provincial government, it wasn't independent yet, gets a share of the oil revenues from Khartoum. This money is fundamental to creating the system of uh, basically like the, the state is bidding war, all of these commanders getting paid off that I described earlier. The government that comes into power in 2011, this SBLM government, is has many different factions in it that we haven't really explored because it's pretty complicated. But one of those factions are those people who are still largely loyal to John Garang, the founder of the SBLM, and a man who was pretty committed in large part to the goal of revolution in Khartoum. And that faction, which is nicknamed the Garang Boys, still believe that South Sudan would never be safe until the government in Khartoum falls. So for instance, at one, site, at one moment, they go and they take over a site across the border in Sudan. And in 2012, there are disputes over how much of the oil fees, because all of the oil is in South Sudan, basically, apart from a couple of sites in Sudan. How much of the transit fees should go to Sudan? Because all the oil has to go north to Port Sudan before it's exported. In the disagreement, the Grand Boys say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to turn off the oil. Just turn it all off. Emergency turn off. We're going to cut off 90% of our state's income. Introducing what Alex Duval calls the doomsday machine. And the doomsday machine is that suddenly, remember that they have to pay off all their debtors, And now there are no more payoffs. And the bet by Paganamun, one of the leading Grand Boys, who's Shiluk, is that the government in, in Khartoum fall before their government will fall. So this is like going all in on the last round of poker. There are no more chips in. You've sold, you know, you've put your house on the market. And this immediately generates a crisis, right? And that crisis is the crisis of like money to, um, to all these commanders. And it's true that is one of the compounding reasons that the war breaks out. That's what Alex Tabal has argued. It's already the case, though, that let's not forget that by 2014, international oil prices are going to tank anyway. Right. So the system is not sustainable in the long run anyway. So like, there is a precipitating cause in the oil turnoff, but it's not fundamentally like on its own a sufficient cause. Like The system is going to cr crash anyway. And it's important to say that control of the oil really doesn't account for any of the dynamics of the war. So at the very beginning of the war, 
the oil in Unity State is all turned off. So it was turned back on again, and immediately it's turned off violently. All of the um, the firms that uh, and the Indonesian firms that run the oil flee, Malaysian firms, and the oil leaks into the ground, causing huge health defects in Unity State. The one last sort of place where there's oil is Upper Nile, hugely defended by National Security Service staff, and that remains the government's income. It's crucial that the government has that income because that is the income that allows it to be economically dominant over the rebels. So from the beginning of the war, the government is going to win because the rebels who are composed of all those militias who they just brought into the government, who've now left the government again, that is the like normative security sector reform process, have absolutely no money and they've got really no foreign backing, a trickle from Khartoum and then nothing. So they're always going to lose, basically, because now the Garang boys who turned off the oil the guys who won a revolution in Khartoum have been pushed out of the government. He claims there was a coup. There wasn't a coup. He puts them all in prison. Instead, he brings in a bunch of people who used to serve Omar Bashir in Khartoum. Ah. So instead, the government becomes partially composed of people who used to work with the oppressor. <laughs> so two years into independence, wow. you've got the Sudanese like officials in power controlling the oil and using that oil money to propagate a war against the populations in South Sudan who are being ethnically displaced by that conflict. So that oil is important, but it's also important to say that by now that oil is like, so every year it reduces. We've already reached peak oil in South Sudan. It's very hard, viscous oil. So it doesn't have a very big market. Like it's very hard to refine. Um, um the amount that they say they're producing massively overstates the amount they're actually producing. There's very little um, transparent public information about oil production. What there is is a lie. Um, the oil that they have are producing has already been sold off by Salvakir in pre-sales, really murky pre-sales, to Emirat and Qatari banks. Mm. So they're already bankrupt via oil. And in some ways, that's actually a blessing. It's a blessing because oil allowed for that propagation of this basically like kleptocratic hierarchy by the elite. And now the question post oil is, okay, how do you form a more sustainable social compact? Yeah. Because if an elite only needs an external source of income for its legitimacy and then uses that income to pay off military commanders, then it's never going to be responsible to the people. But if mm -hmm. that oil is done that it has to find a new basis for controlling people, a new basis for government legitimacy. And that actually might be very interesting in terms of the way that will allow for a recreation of the South Sudanese social compact. Mm. You know, I'm curious, does the uh, the revolution uh, or whatever you want to call it, I guess, uh, people get upset about the word revolution sometimes. So I'm not sure if there's like a political bias in that term here, um, but does, I'll call it that, does the revolution which took place in Sudan change anything about the situation or future of South Sudan? So we don't know yet. I think that's important to, to say. I think both it would change a lot in South Sudan if it changed the the, the way the ruling elite is organized in Sudan. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we should say that the partly the question of Sudan is the is the remaining question after South Sudanese independence in Sudan, which is how does one deal with those peripheries that fought with the SPLA? but weren't included in the peace agreement that brought the war to an end in 2005. So how does one deal with South Kordofan, with Blue Nile, with Darfur? And those are questions which are really central to 
South Sudanese politics and they're questions that partly South Sudan is trying to organize an answer to. So they're really important. Two is that at the moment, the one of the most important commanders in Sudan, Hemeti, uh, a Darfuri commander, has very important business interests in Sudan. And he's been largely, I mean, very active in the South Sudanese peace process, such as it is, and in bringing in a number of commanders and politicians into power with whom he has mutual interests. So one of the probably the most important figure now in South Sudanese politics after the president is his security advisor, Tukyu Gatluwak. Mm. And Tukyu Gatluwak was the security advisor for Bashir during the Second Civil War. And he's now skipped over. And he's now the security advisor for Salva Kiir. And he's very close to Hemeti. And together they appointed the governor of some of the border areas between Sudan and South Sudan. So there are these like concerted economic interests. And were they to change, then that would put pressure on Salva Kiir to not simply be in, in hoc, as it were, um, listening to this clique of old NCP members. Because in a weird way, I hadn't actually thought about this until... Um, you asked me this question, but the NCP, which was this ruling party of, of Omar Bashir, which was overthrown, no longer has power in Sudan, but in many ways has power in South Sudan. So the last readout of that like repressive regime brought down by the people in Sudan is South Sudan. Huh. So what then the consequences are of the battle in Sudan is, is uh, of the, of the struggle in Sudan is really, it's, I think it's really open at the moment because I, I don't think it's clear what's going to happen in Sudan. Um, I don't, on the other hand, think that the, whatever happens, I don't think that the response will be that there is going to be external Sudanese backing for a new South Sudanese rebel, rebellious force. I think whatever crisis happens in South Sudan, in a sense, will happen in Juba within the ruling elite rather than leading to another schism that leads to another war in the sense of there being two opposing sides. Mm, mm. And lastly, Joshua, can you tell us a bit about yourself? You know, how and why did you end up in South Sudan? How did you conduct your research there? And was it personally dangerous for you? Um, I came. I first came there during the CPA period, this period of peace from 2005 to 2011, when I was uh, working as a research intern, I guess, at the British Institute in Eastern Africa. And I was really struck by the role of the international community, by the difficulty of establishing state borders, when actually the question of borders was much more complicated and shifting among pastoralist populations. And I, my background had been really as an immigration activist and asylum activist in Europe and in Amsterdam before that point. And I was really motivated by issues around borders, really, and no borders. Mm. And and I thought this was a really interesting place to explore them. And so I then um, came back to do my PhD in 2010 at the University of California, Berkeley in anthropology, and came to Juba. And I quickly found that my fieldwork grant, so thank you, Lindgren, uh, was totally inadequate to the cost of living <laughs> in Juba, which you yeah. could not um, exaggerate, or the cost of just oh. renting vehicles from, you know, which could run to like $100 a day, even up to $500 a day in the worst cases. And so I got a job with an NGO uh, working as a conflict researcher. 
and I found myself implicated in the international system. So I think that mm. there's a sort of fantasy, <clears throat> which in many cases though is a reality of anthropological fieldwork, where you spend two years living in a place um, and you get to know one place really well. I found that to be really difficult. So I, my first fieldwork was in Abyei, and as I was taking a break from Abyei, it was invaded by the Sudanese government and the whole population wow. fled. So I couldn't return to Abyei. Um, and I found myself instead doing years, you know, because it's been years that I've been there, um, doing these sort of one-month consultancies or two-month consultancies or two-week mm -hmm. consultancies where I go in for a variety of people I work for, small arms survey, set of humanitarian dialogue, um, and I write these reports on the conflict and the dynamics of the conflict. Often the work is dangerous, but it's also far less dangerous for me, uh, a white international were in a situation of racism and class than it is for the thousands of Sassanese people who've lost their lives yeah. and write these public reports. And I think that the book that I'm doing at the moment is also about the limits of the forms of knowledge that I produce in that way. And it's thinking about a question that I think is a quite broad question really in, in the world today, which is like, what are the limits of expertise? Because I think we live in a time in which on the one hand, we are, the world is full of experts. Think about the pandemic. Think about the question of the scientists, right? And the, the, the question of scientific knowledge. And there's, there's appeal actually by liberals that says, if only we listen to the scientists, as if the scientists mm. said one thing, which of course they don't, is obviously it's political. Obviously there is no scientific statement without a politics being attached to it. Right. So I'm, I, the book I'm writing is about how knowledge is produced about these about the war in South Sudan and then circulated and the uses to which it's put and the way you always find that knowledge being imbricated in politics, basically, and bound up. And, and bound up, I think, in the limits of liberal politics, because I think fundamentally, if the question you ask is how to make a place stable, then what you're involved in is the politics of stabilization. The politics of stabilization is the infinite deferment of the question of freedom. Mm. Because the politics of stabilization fundamentally doesn't make a distinction between a dictator who brings peace, an international system that creates the simulacrum of democracy or a real thriving democracy, because it's just an external viewpoint. It's an external viewpoint that says what we need is for there to be no trouble there so it can mm -hmm. be a stable part of our liberal international firmament. And I think fundamentally what's happening at the moment is a breakdown, I hope, the end of that sort of vision of liberal politics in the world. Well, that was very well stated. And la I guess the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll want to end on is where can people follow your work? Um, they can go to www.joshuacraze.com. It's the easiest place to do it. Joshua, thank you so much for joining me and giving me so much of your time today. My pleasure. It was lovely talking to you.